0: The hilo the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Just keep washing the hands and keep going, you know Corona.
1: The absolute splendor of Gemma Collins has been exhibited so much more than usual during this pandemic, I think I saw I saw a tweet the other day where someone called Chloe had tweeted her saying like if you like at Gemma collins then you're a fucking idiot or something and she just retweeted it with the comment have a day off chloe hun and a kiss <laughs> i think prescribing someone a day off is one of the best put downs of all
0: time <laughs> i think the kiss at the end is the best have a day off chloe hun i've really been enjoying it diva in lockdown diva in lockdown and grace and perry's art club are both very happy making programs for very different reasons
1: uh so i've watched grace and perry's art club and i think it's joyous can you please give me the lowdown on uh diva in lockdown
0: It's so joyous, isn't it? Grayson Perry has such a warmth, and he's got uh, the most charming laugh. And the relationship between him and Philippa is—it's gorgeous. It's a really like galvanising thing to watch. Diva in lockdown is basically—I um, think ITV had to do a pivot, as so many you know channels have had to do. They were in the middle of filming yeah. a documentary with her. Um, Uh, not documentary, you know, a reality series with her. And then the pandemic happened. And so they just had to slap on a sort of lockdown set became diva in lockdown. (laughs) But she, um, she comes across really well. It's very funny. It's very enjoyable. It's very tongue in cheek.
1: See, I've heard that it could be a piece of like documentarian history, because someone who works in TV told me that 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 original show was meant to be about her launching a business. And then obviously this was thrown in as a spanner in the works, which is sort of like the greatest narrative spanner in the works when you're following a new business venture. And maybe my friend was looking for the silver lining, but he said that it could be the same sort of like coincidental, amazing narrative twist as when Louis Theroux met the Hamiltons. (laughs) and <laughs> that now they have oh, this like they have to like follow how it's all kind of coming apart and how she's navigating like this disastrous time to have a business
0: when was that hamilton one uh, been a good 10 15 so years
1: ago anyway we'll see diva in lockdown at sundance 2021 i'm sure
0: Thank you for your Lock Dad stories this week. We have been enjoying them so much. We got a great message in regards to the priest and the water pistol last week. The priest who was watering his... Um, floral baskets. Someone told us that they knew a child that had been baptised via water pistol. Well, they knew the parents of the child that had been <laughs> baptised by a water pistol. Also, I was made aware of an Instagram account this week, which is actually called Lockdown Stories. It's at underscore Lockdown Stories. And it's one sentence scribbles about different people's lockdown experiences the creator of the account uh writes we are constantly being told that we're all in this pandemic together but the truth is we are all in different boats with our own unique circumstances so here are a few of them day one of lockdown i bought a vibrator solid choice here's (laughs) another one congratulations to me i finished netflix today (laughs) and here's a very moving one Counting down the days until my fiancé finishes radiotherapy and we can go somewhere other than the hospital. I've never been so excited for a walk around the block. And one that won't resonate with everyone, but is something I've certainly heard a few people tentatively voicing. I don't want my old life back.
1: I wanted to read my favourite lockdown love story, from a listener so far which is how three women have ended up isolating together now she quite boldly gave all their real names (laughs) it's quite a specific story so therefore quite identifiable so on her behalf I'm going to change their names as I go my girlfriend Gina and I went to a house party just before lockdown Perhaps we got a little giddier than usual as we knew it might be the last for a while. We spent a lot of the night with a girl we both vaguely knew from our football team called Abby, but had previously not spent much time with. It's since been hotly debated who initiated it, but we're still unsure. All we know is Abby ended up coming home with us and we had the most crazy night and following day together. After she left she went almost straight to her parents house outside of London to isolate with them. Somehow we maintained seven weeks of texting on a group and getting drunk on FaceTime. Abby decided she'd return to London and instead of going to her flat she's now been isolating with me and Gina for three weeks we're certain that reduced external societal pressures and influence due to lockdown have let us be open to something we maybe wouldn't have been before we're not overthinking what will happen post lockdown but we are having the best time i fucking love this story i love a menage a trois, and i love that something as out of the ordinary as a pandemic has opened them up to exploring something they wouldn't have explored in ordinary circumstances and it sounds gorgeous and very fun
0: it's a throuple It's a thruple. It's a They've Come come out of the pandemic in a thruple. God, so when they go back to work and someone says, um, like, you know, how was your lockdown? Imagine it's quite boring. No, I have a brand (laughs) new relationship. And apparently a new home.
1: Wish them all the best. We also had an email from a medical student who cleared up our ill-informed pontifications on whether crunchy bars can replace bones
0: in the human body. Not as ill-informed as you suggest, though. Quite a few people message being like, no, this is, this is legit.
1: <laughs> well, she says, after almost weeing my pants, laughing at your commentary regarding bone structure and crunchy bars, I thought I'd write in and provide some clarity on the subject. I'm a medical student and we do indeed use this analogy frequently when learning about bone structure and to inform patients. The long bone, e.g. the femur, has a harder yeah. outer layer which can be represented by the chocolate layer of a crunchy bar, while the inner layer of long bones is trabecular and porous in nature, resembling the honeycomb of the crunchy. So while there isn't any genetic similarity between the human body and a crunchy bar, our bones do pretty much look like them. Although considering how many I've consumed in isolation, I'd say I'm genetically about 80% crunchy at
0: this point. It doesn't totally surprise me that our bones look like that, but then also it it does, because that does mean they're pretty porous, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I think basically we had the kernel of truth with the idea of them aesthetically looking similar and where I think we went a bit off piste is (laughs) when we started speculating whether bone transplants could be conducted with the contents of a corner shop's chocolate shelf.
0: I was also informed this week this might be my favourite thing I've ever been informed of although the Hilo's sub-editor Abby who's actually in Berlin right now having spoken to German friends, she's not totally sure she agrees. Anyway, I've been told that there is a word in German for social distancing as measured by swimming pool noodles worn on one's head. So there is a word for that. <laughs> the word is... Oh, my goodness. Abstains, Give it a good old go. Abstandsvermessung. Abby says, I'm in Berlin and I've been told it's a formal word for measuring distance. I'm not sure the word itself specifically means anything to do with swimming pool noodles. But anyway, I very much liked the suggestion that it did. Panda, how are your Zooms going? Are you doing, are you
1: doing Zoom drinking, Zoom meetings?
0: No only for work actually now i've sort of um i've I've started exploring new zooms as I said, like uh talks and my I did my cookery lesson last night via zoom but other than that i'm I'm out
1: so I'm a bit zoomed out actually I like a lot of people who are fortunate enough not to have any sort of immediate danger in their life during the pandemic but are plodding through the day-to-day of it. I'm finding this week quite a heavy week in the lockdown cycle and I think I've just been doing too many Zooms and I think I'm missing the texture of humans now. I would do anything just to touch some skin or see a friend's face in profile or yeah the actual kind of Flesh and blood texture of a human is the thing that I'm really, really craving now. But
0: good news. I was wondering why you meant profile, and then I've just realised it's because you're looking. I was like, why did you have to see them in profile? But it's just because you're not seeing any. You're yeah, seeing I flat, just flat the flat That's face. It. I got it. Here you go. Here's my profile. Oh, what a
1: gorgeous profile it is! I miss the angles of faces and just the the three D version. The three D versions of um, the people I love. But good news. You can spice up your virtual meetings on Zoom by inviting along a goat. So I'm currently currently on the Cronkshaw Fold Farm website in Rossendale, Lancashire coronavirus the only logical reaction hire a goat for all your important business video calls be real will anyone even notice if escaped goat joins the call for the bargain price of five pounds all currencies and countries accepted you can choose one of our goats to join you for the first ten minutes of your zoom meeting there's like almost a menu of goats choose a goat for your call then there's a picture of Mary the goat. Mary has had it with the mum life and has taken the approach of letting her kid, the sassy Simone, do whatever she wants. This includes Simone jumping on her back. Kids today have no respect. What to expect from Mary? Ambivalence, limited attention span, totally fine peeing in front of you. Book Mary. And Then there's Lisa, Elizabeth, but what, but all why? these various goats. You can just have a goat just hanging, hanging out on the call with How you. How much are they? Five quid. And you get 10 minutes of the
0: goat just
1: larking around.
0: I think I understand that even less than I understand goat yoga. Oh, I've heard about goat yoga because goats love clambering on you, don't they? Apparently. I I mean, actually, I don't know. But I imagine there's a reason why they're using goats and not... I mean, donkeys might hurt, I suppose. But when goats hurt, goats would... Who wants a goat to climb on them?
1: No, I do know this because at Kentish Town City Farm, if you go near the goats and you feed them and they relax, they want to climb on your back. It's a very
0: strange inclination that they have. But I don't. But they might want to climb on someone's back. But why would you want them to climb on your back? Oh, are you just nice, doing it for the goats' pleasure? Do you think?
1: No, no, it's a nice vibe. I've had I've had a goat on my back, and it, it it's a unique pleasure.
0: <laughs> I have fucking lost it. Well, I've got some more lockdown stats for you. The top 10 most searched lockdown beauty treatments and search increases since lockdown. So some of these are not surprising. In at number one, how to cut men's hair, 623% rise. Doesn't surprise me. Um, How to pierce your own ear, 172% rise. That's absolutely mad. And then, this is kind of great... How to cut a mullet with an increase of 124% thanks to Joe Exotic. (laughs) Love the idea of coming out of lockdown looking like Joe Exotic with a goat on your back. I learned of something this week that I thought might be helpful or interesting to people who are furloughed for the imminent future. It's called Tear and it's an initiative that connects people on furlough with volunteer opportunities at charities and good causes. Obviously this is not a replacement for paid work but for people who are in a place of financial security and want to do something to help. I'm not suggesting that Uh, people should work for free. But if you have some time to spare and you would like to help, check out Furlontier, F-U-R-L-O-N-T-E-E-R and I will link that in the show notes. What have you been enjoying this week, Dolly?
1: I am loving Adam Buxton's book, Ramble Book, Musings on Childhood, Friendship, Family and 80s Pop Culture. The publication date for this book has been pushed back to September, but the audio book has been released early which is what I've spent the last week plugged into. And I don't think I would have listened to it on audiobook normally, but because I was so desperate to read it, I did because I didn't have any other choice. And I'm so, so, so glad I did. If you're a fan of Buckles and in particular his podcast, I think the audiobook is the way to go. It's unlike any other audiobook I've listened to because he's added in loads of extra content for the audio version. There are jingles for each chapter, ramble breaks in which he adds a kind of audio footnote commenting on uh, whatever it is he's written. There's sometimes atmospheric music played in the background and I haven't got to it yet but there's also a bonus podcast episode between um, him and Joe Cornish at the end of the book. There's a lot in the story about pop culture and music, particularly that of the 80s. And I hope that that doesn't put people off for whom that period of culture doesn't really, you know, engage with them. Because even though he is talking about very specific artists, a huge range of artists from Bowie to the Talking Heads to the Pixies, really that's kind of irrelevant because it's it's about fandom. And fandom is such an important part of who he is and about his friendships and his childhood and it's a really transportative account of what it is to be a teenager and to be lonely and not fit in and to find kinship and companionship and um, connection in music and idols and films of pop culture. And that it was just like such a reminder to me of that period of your life in adolescence that I think everyone goes through at some point. The bits that I'm really loving are about his father, whose death. Inspired the book, and with whom Adam had a complicated relationship. He's not afraid to delve into those complications and the differences, not just between their temperaments, but between their generational temperaments. And a story in it that I'm fascinated by is uh, the very sad story of his dad's financial struggles, the extent of which Adam uncovers when he opens a box of his father's documents after he dies and finds these. Pretty humiliating letters in which his father begged his employer and friends to lend him vast amounts of money because he'd found himself in enormous debt. And what's interesting is the predominant cause of this was because he was absolutely hell-bent on sending his children to private school. He put his family into financial ruin because he felt private school was such a non-negotiable. And Adam really looks into where that instinct came from, why he was so obsessed with that being the hallmark of success and the, the effect that, that that had on
0: his family. Yeah, he talks about his dad a fair bit on the podcast, doesn't he? And I can I remember when, uh, around the time that he passed away. And his dad featured in his work
1: as well on the Adam and Joe show. And he's talked about the importance of his father in his life and the disappointment that he felt in their relationship, which was never quite resolved, that disappointment, I think, which I think resonates with a lot of people, particularly boys and their dads, I think. There's often a a gap between the kind of conversations they wish they could have and the kind of openness they wish they could have and the reality of of their relationship. And, and I think often, sadly, particularly with men of Adam Buxton's father's generation, um, who was born in the 20s, I think those men went to the grave unable to have the kind of conversations and the kind of intimacy with their children that, that they probably longed for and definitely their children longed for. And a lot of the book as well is Adam sort of trying to find peace with that. It's a wonderful book. It's more, it's more uh, moving than I thought it would be. But it's also very funny. There's a recurring interlude in between chapters that I love, which is a list of all the arguments he's had with his wife. <laughs> and after he describes each argument he he says whether he thinks he won or his wife won and just hearing about other couples arguments is
0: one of my favorite pastimes that is impressively honest (laughs) I think a lot of people would balk at listing down all the arguments they've ever had because they can get pretty nutty
1: particularly if you're single in lockdown and you're romanticising the idea of having a partner. Listening to the breakdown
0: of those arguments really makes you count your blessings. I think it's always fascinating to see or to feel like someone is lifting the veil on their relationship, isn't it? Like Esther Perel's Perel's been doing her podcast with couples um, within lockdown. So she had one, which, I mean, this is a pretty um probably a divisive one there was one couple where uh one of them was continuing an affair during lockdown so coming and going um oh my and God. she's been putting on that podcast during lockdown and then there's another podcast which is hugely popular um called shagged married avoid i think which is by a- Shagged shag married annoyed it's great it's chris ramsey Yes, that would make sense. Shag, Marie annoyed. Yes, Kristen Rosie Ramsey. And that has been on my um, list of podcasts to listen to. And it's um, it's hugely popular. And I imagine it's because people love getting an inside look at their relationship.
1: Yeah, I love it. And actually, if you're someone who's nosy and you like hearing about other people's arguments, speaking of Adam Buxton, I think it was last year, Frank Skinner did an episode of the Adam Buxton podcast in which he described the biggest rows that he and his girlfriend... Have had, and uh, I still think about them all the time. They bring me so much joy. <laughs> have you been enjoying any podcast, Panda?
0: I've been continuing to enjoy Louis Theroux's podcast, Grounded. Surprise, Brilliant. surprise, Louis Theroux is a very good interviewer. <laughs> But his subjects are actually even better interviewees. Helena Bonham Carter was thrilling on the experience of fame and she spoke very movingly, I thought, about becoming famous before she was comfortable in her own skin and how that affected her view of her sexuality. And I really loved her gracious responses to Louis' quite forthright questions about her relationship with her ex-husband. Yeah, she was gracious and very open. I was amazed
1: at how open she was actually. It made me really, really love her, that podcast interview. I think she came across as really thoughtful and funny and just someone who doesn't take themselves too seriously, but also someone who has a very deep and sort of sovereign understanding of who they are and what their story is. And I think when you've been as famous as she has from such a young age, you don't have a choice. Either you get to grips with like a really solid sense of self that can take a battering from the general public and tabloids and critics year on year all you think and she seems like someone who has managed to do the first with a lot of work
0: I just really enjoyed listening to someone who sounded very at peace she sounded really mm. content and jolly and calm um and it sounded like she was in a good place kind of mentally physically it was just it was a really kind of um comforting podcast to listen to but it's louie's podcast with the comedian and actor sir lenny henry that really blew me away it blew me away as well in fact it was so
1: mind-blowing the things he was saying and the experiences that he was sharing that I think I'll have to listen to it again to really kind of absorb it because everything he was saying was was uh, so, so affecting.
0: It covers so much ground, his upbringing in the West Midlands, what it was like to find out that his father was in fact a family friend he knew as an uncle, oh, aged 11, yeah. being discovered at a disco, the way he dealt with racism as a young child and then later as a comic and the confusion when it presented as apparently benign like when a whole row of his fans and this is a couple of decades ago but it's still shocking I think to hear about a whole row of his fans blacked up their faces and the way he describes his response which is devastatingly equable, is a sort of lads that's not really okay He Mm. even talks about how in the 80s and the 90s, he knew that comedy wasn't evolved enough to not make jokes about race in a way that isn't accepted now, but that he wished there had been a producer there in his early days who would say, well, why don't we just make one joke about Lenny trying to wash the black off his face instead of four? And the simplicity Mm. with which he relays this and doesn't try and change what he knew the situation to be just expresses dismay that it couldn't have been mediated a little bit better that that was almost Mm. even more impactful and important yeah and
1: there's a moment in it in which he says something along the lines of but do you think racism has decreased in this country or do you see progression when it comes to racial relations in this country and he just says do you And he says, yes, even now when he is the talent or he goes on to TV shows, there might be a larger group of people of colour who are in front of the camera. But he said, when I'm going from the dressing room, the car to the dressing room, to the set, there's no one who looks like me. And those are the people who are making the decisions. Um, Mm. So I think that's like a really important thing to remember that diversity of talent and public facing diversity is important but it's only a small part of the story like really this needs to be so 360 for any visible impactful change and that means the people who make creative decisions and the people who shape uh the culture that we watch rather than just present the culture that we watch are from all different kinds of backgrounds
0: yeah it's something that has to happen on um every single rung of the ladder but it's not even a ladder actually because it's not really linear is it It has to happen kind mm. of in all all different areas of the the process of making entertainment yeah. I also found the way he talked about his mother and how she was the funny one at home he absolutely was not allowed to be he was just a child and children were not the funny ones and the way he talks about her is very affectionate but also admirably honestly because his mother used to smack him and in his later years he realises that what he had seen as discipline then was actually physical abuse and he said he found it very hard writing about that because he realised that she must have really needed someone to talk to and his stepfather was not particularly verbal and they didn't really talk about feelings and I thought that was an extremely generous way to speak about a traumatic experience especially at the hands of a loved one and he's done so much work trying to understand how what he calls her self-loathing, manifested in her hurting him. I wanted to insert a clip where he talks about his two selves
2: growing up. I knew there were consequences for ill behaviour. And it was violence, you know. And it made me scared of lots of things, and I I sort of regret that. I would have liked to have been more fearless, been able to stand up for myself. I was often beaten up, and I hated it, but I didn't know how to defend myself. And so I would just allow people to do stuff to me that now I would never dream of letting somebody insult me or call me a racist name or whatever. I wouldn't dream of that stuff. But as a little kid, I've been brought up to integrate and be everybody's friend. And so suddenly, you just felt yourself being internally wounded by things that people said. When I turned 14, I had white friends because I'd integrated successfully. In the house, I was a Jamaican, but outside the house, I talk like these because that's how my white friends talked. And suddenly I was introduced to this world of being in their house and listening to Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and eating ham, egg and chips. Suddenly I was in that world, as well as being in the Caribbean world.
0: He's the most beautiful speaker. He doesn't go into these long monologues and every single... He doesn't go into long monologues, but every single word is worth its weight. And he speaks in that way that... A few people do, but it's but it's rare where they don 't waste a single word and everything they say, no matter how casual, is meaningful and it's mesmerizing yeah. to listen to. yeah, I really enjoyed it.
1: I also really enjoyed Jenny Stevens's piece for The Guardian on where to start in the Joni Mitchell back catalog it's a digestible but detailed guide on the suggested journey to take with her albums the Entry level album to begin with and to get to know the Joni sound and her lyricism, and then which albums to progress through kind of stage by stage. And with each suggestion, she gives some biographical context for the work. So you also get a bit of a sort of potted Joni Mitchell history. And then the piece ends with a digested Spotify playlist, a further reading suggestion. And a listening suggestion for a podcast episode, which I think I talked about on the show a while back, which is called Jenny Mitchell taught me how to feel. It's a really informative and well put together article. And I think it's so important to publish these kinds of articles because they act as a reminder that it's never too late in life to come to a classic. And I think sometimes there's a self-consciousness when approaching an enormous or much lauded artist or writer in their body of work, that either you have to be familiar with it from youth and grow up with it, or it's too late for you. It's sort of too late for it to seep into your cultural DNA, and therefore you have to kind of claim no interest in it at all. So I think that kind of encouragement,
0: that non-pretentious encouragement, is always really important. I always think of Emma Thompson when I think of Joni Mitchell. I think of her unwrapping the box in Love Actually. I know. Well, that's what that Radio 4 programme was,
1: I think, named after. Joni Mitchell taught me how to feel because I'm a Thompson's character that says, doesn't she? She taught your cold English wife how to feel. She's such an important artist, I think, for so many people in terms of how she gives language to really difficult
0: emotions.
1: I'm also making Joni Mitchell sound very serious. She is serious, but in a tough week of lockdown, I've been listening to the back catalogue and her music is so uplifting as well.
0: Anything else that particularly struck your interest this week? I really
1: enjoyed a piece called Insanity Can Keep You Sane by Molly Young for the New York Times magazine. It was sent to me by my friend Monica after I described to Monica how I'm fairly certain I've lost a grip on my sanity. Um, Not entirely provoked, but partly provoked by finding a series of drunken videos that I did of myself that I totally forgot about last week of me dancing to Doris Day in my living room. And I can almost no longer recall what (laughs) previous normality now feels like. So in this piece, she talks about how during lockdown, she's found herself abandoning her usual routines in favour of more eccentric ones, such as following the advice of a guru who doesn't believe in furniture and who advises to spend all day kneeling or squatting which she does, she describes walking around her flat naked, staying up all night, uh, eating her food without utensils or hands, a bit like a dog, coaxing a group of wild turkeys out of the woods near her flat uh, with sunflower seeds. She writes... Little by little, my fidelity to personhood diminished. I spent hours sitting on the carpet against a wall, doing nothing except considering. I considered investigating the stain under the boiler. I considered making banana bread. I considered cleaning the gutters. The word consider implies correctly that these thoughts at no point turned into actions. She then goes on to talk about a fascinating ancient ritual of grief and the traditional link between how we feel inside and our emotional inner life, In a moment of crisis, and how that is reflected in our day to day routines in the short term of that crisis. And then she explores this question of what identity is and how identity is defined and therefore can potentially alter in this time of crisis. And she says she believes identity is defined by how you behave and your actions rather than your inner life and how you feel, which is why it feels at the moment like we might Be becoming different people and how potentially scary that can feel. Um, And obviously, she makes the point that this is in relation to if you're someone who isn't in immediate physical or financial danger and you have the luxury of observing yourself alter through this time rather than just surviving the everyday. I wanted to read the final paragraph aloud as I think it's so subtle yet so memorable in its parting message through this very everyday scene that I'm sure is so familiar to us. Next to the house where I'm staying is a road that cuts through a marsh to a bunch of dumpsters and I spend hours shuffling between the house and the dumpsters. It would be more pleasant to walk literally anywhere else but I need to be within sprinting distance of home in case the anxiety takes a stomach-related expression. It doesn't help that the marsh smells powerfully of sulphur. During one of my customary shuffles between home and dumpsters, I looked up and saw on the embankment opposite the fetid marsh, a guy in work boots with his hands on his hips, gazing down at me. I lurched to a halt, embarrassed to be caught scurrying back and forth like a creepy little rodent. He lifted a hand and waved. I thought that was such an amazing vignette, which basically just describes this sense of change to all of us in our own idiosyncratic ways, but in a collective way as well. And our own understanding and patience of each other's changing behaviour at this time, whether it's, you know, hiring a goat (laughs) to come into a Zoom call or shuffling around in between your house and dumpsters or doing drunken videos of yourself dancing to Doris Day videos. I think there's this, like, extraordinary understanding that now exists between humans of like, well, whatever you got to do.
0: <laughs> God, you just reminded me all over again about the goats on Zoom. I'm going to just keep remembering that and being like <laughs> totally thrown by it. It's not ever going to not be weird. I'm not going to protest the information. <laughs> but back to what you were just talking about, that reminds me of something Alan DeBotton said recently, that moments of insanity are in fact part of remaining sane and I've oh, been thinking yeah. about that because I think, I think that's really comforting isn't it because sure I'm not the only person that maybe falls into the trap sometimes of thinking that like sanity is um, you know constant. regularity yeah exactly <laughs> yeah that it's a constant feeling yeah
1: no it's about encompassing and accepting the peaks and the ab- troughs abnormalities in this time and resisting the urge to overanalyse I think I also wanted to flag to our listeners that a performance of Love, Loss and What I Wore, which is a play written by Nora Ephron and Delia Ephron, adapted from the 1995 book by Elaine Beckerman, a performance of it is available to watch online. I've always wanted to watch this play. It was a production and on tour from 2008 to 2011 in America and this performance, which is available online, is a film of a reunion reading done in 2017 where cast members Lucy DeVito, Tracy Ellis Ross, Carol Kane, Natasha Leone, and Rosie O'Donnell reunited at 90Y New York for a special one-night-only performance directed by Karen Carpenter, who directed the original New York and LA productions. Love, Loss and What I Wore is about cornerstones of female experience explored through clothes. A multi-chorus of different female characters tell 28 different stories of falling in love, getting married, losing a child, being raped, and what they were wearing acts as the portal into that memory and that storytelling.
0: That sounds brilliant. I've actually never heard of that play. I'm not
1: sure if it was ever shown here, but It was a huge hit in America. It's really funny and familiar, as well as being very emotional in parts. It covers so many recognisable moments, from the humiliation of first bra shopping, to the arguments we have with our mothers, to our obsession with diet culture and how that impinges on the dialogue we have with our bodies and our own self-esteem. It's just a really wonderful, familiar watch. And... I feel like I've got into a real rut at the moment of lying in bed and sort of binging box sets all night or just getting leathered on Zoom. So this was just a really lovely change. (laughs) I just curled up in bed and turned all my lights out and watched it. And it did really feel like I was in the theatre at points. One of the good nights at the theatre, not one of the boring ones. And uh, it was a very absorbing performance. It's about an hour and 40 minutes long. It costs $10 to rent, so about eight quid, so what you spend on a cinema ticket. And it was just a nice change to to what I've been watching and what I've been consuming of an evening.
0: I love the idea of... um delving back for content as well i know you and i have spoken before about how probably because the nature of doing a weekly podcast that's semi-current we can kind of focus on what's like out now or coming out soon and i suddenly realized that despite absolutely adoring olive kitteridge and olive again by Elizabeth Strout but I've never seen the adaptation that stars Francis McDormand who is the brilliant actor that lots of people will know mostly from three billboards and um so I'm going to buy that and also I think try and be a little bit more predisposed to stuff that I haven't seen rather than what's coming up um and ditto in in reading as well actually I've also been loving Girl, Woman,
1: Other. I'm only about halfway through as I'm finding it really hard to read at the moment. Even the most absorbing books, I don't know what's going on with my brain. I'm finding it really hard to concentrate on books at the
0: moment. I think that's quite a common feeling. Lots of people have said to me that they're finding it hard to read or hard to properly concentrate, take things in. I loved Girl, Woman, Other though. I don't think I ever spoke about it on the show, so I'm quite excited you've brought that up so we can chat about it now so those listeners who haven't read
1: girl Woman, other have very likely heard of it as bernardine everisto joint won the booker prize for it last year can you give us a little bio of it panda
0: Well, I don't want to give anything away because I know I can be quite bad at doing spoilers. So I'll be vague about the storylines themselves. But it's a polyphonic novel that comprises 12 interwoven stories, mostly about black British womanhood spanning several generations. The New York Times described it as having a large root system, which I think is Mm. such a good way of putting it. It has tremendous roots that all overlap and sort of tunnel actually in other ways so a character you meet is a young woman then pops up in someone else's story as an older character for example there isn't really an overarching plot per se it's a series of um not necessarily scenes but small snatches of life and but they don't feel unsatisfying like that kind of book can you are given um, almost a perfect amount for each character And
1: even though there isn't an overarching plot, it does feel like it's telling one very big story, which is a kind of ancestral story and a story of sisterhood and a story of womanhood told from 200 feet in the sky looking down and how our experiences connect and fragment, how certain factors of fortune and of circumstance divide the experiences of being a woman and how certain feelings are always mirrored.
0: Despite there being so many voices, you don't feel like anyone's left unsketched and she doesn't relay one experience any less convincingly than others. You know, you can't tell where her own politics or loyalties lie as an author. There's no sense that she loves some characters more than others, or more importantly, that some characters are more redeemable than others. And I think that's such a skill often when you're reading a book I do feel that you get some insight into who you're meant to like and who you're not meant to like and that's impossible to tell in this book there's a very kind of there's a there's an equality to the telling of the story not to the characters themselves but to Mm. the way that she tells their stories it's very unjudgmental I
1: think which is quite rare to be able to do skillfully as a narrator.
0: Especially when the stories span the breadth of views and lived experience as much as these characters do in terms of class, race, gentrification, sexuality, sexual identity, social convention. Some of the characters hold views that would be considered by convention quite radical or views that are unpleasant or unedifying or narrow-minded but there isn't any moralising although the narrative drive of the book is obviously one of progression and inclusion.
1: And the way the stories are told is quite fluid and breaks traditional form. But I also want to make it clear to our listeners because I have I read that it broke traditional form and I thought that meant it would be quite abstract. But the stories are really easy to follow. None of it feels impenetrable or too abstract.
0: I thought it would be harder to read. I agree. It was, um, I think, maybe posited as more experimental than it yeah. feels like to read um that said there are no full stops used and when I say that that probably makes it sound like a real odyssey to get through like sort of William Faulkner um and it's actually it's just yeah it's really not it's a vibrant chorus of a book it's not always an easy read there are some extremely sad parts but reading it isn't immersive and uplifting experience Mm -hmm. and i think if it's possible for one piece of work to do everything and to tell every story which is not we've talked about that before this idea that everyone has to be for everyone or it's rubbish but this book comes closer to that than i thought possible without feeling like things have been crowbarred into the story i just wanted to read this little bit which comes from penelope's story penelope's parents were dull and dispassionate ottomans crawling towards their deaths She wrote in her diary at the age of 14. It was unfortunate, because she herself was brimming with vivacity and racing towards a marvellous life that stretched gloriously ahead of her, as she also wrote in her diary. So the form there, I think, actually really lent itself well to that teenage diary. God, I bet that makes you excited at the prospect of having a teenage daughter,
2: Pandora... (laughs)
0: for anyone else struggling to read at this time it's a really good thing to dip in and out of because you can read one story at a time and so in that sense it's the perfect reading material for the anxieties of the now because you can consume it in little bits which is how i did i'm get and i'm guessing how you might be approaching it dolly yeah. if you're feeling scattered of attention span a lot can happen in the next 3 years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend We do a few ask the high lows. Let's do a few ask the
1: high lows. Why don't you kick us off, Panda?
0: I can't help but feel slightly heartbroken every time someone talks about friends they made at high school because I have come out of high school with none. I guess I'm looking for advice on how to cope when you feel like you've failed at friendship. I'm worried it will always be this way and that there's something wrong with me. After 18 years, I haven't made one single lasting friend and I'm terrified I never will.
1: Thank you for writing this email to us, because I think it's, I think it's an anxiety that a lot of people have. And I think it's really important that we don't romanticize the idea of childhood friendships, and that we hear lots of stories about friendships that happen at all times in life. So for me personally, I have one or two close friends from school. That's it. The majority of my group of close friends came from university. And when I left university, I made lots of very close friends from work, Pandora included. And I know that as I progress through life and go through other various milestones and projects, and maybe falling in love, or maybe having a family, or maybe moving abroad, that there will be lots and lots of opportunities to connect with lots and lots of other people. And that's really exciting because you know what? There, there is something amazing about having a group of friends who have known you your whole life, who you've known since childhood. That is special and that is a really magic history that you can't recreate with someone. But it also can be very claustrophobic and it can mean that you can't shake the reputation of who you were when you were younger And also, I'm thinking about a very specific ex-boyfriend of mine. He was in a friendship group that was so solid and so sprawling. And they'd all been best, best friends from childhood. And I remember being very jealous of that friendship group. And even though that history and all those shared experiences was wonderful, something that they also said to me is they think that it also incubated bad behaviour. When you have a group of friends that have known each other since they were tiny, you can, not in all instances, but just to be have your eyes open and look at the downsides of what those kind of friendship groups can be. It can also mean that you don't have much room to grow because people just assume that you're fixed as the person you were when you were five. Um, and often that also means that it becomes hard to criticise each other because you just accept each other's behaviour forever. I'm not saying one's better than the other. All I'm saying is I think we can romanticise lifelong friendships. There are so many different types of friendships that can come to you at so many different times in your life.
0: I don't want to patronise you by saying, oh, you're only 18, you've got your whole life ahead of you. But in terms of friendships, I think so much can change from the age of 18, I used to think that there was a certain age at which you sort of had your roster of friends and I truly don't think that now. I have friends in their mid to late 30s who made all of their best friends in their 30s. They had different best friends in their 20s and they had different best friends as teenagers and that is how... And that is how some friendships work. Some people have the same best friends throughout their whole life. There's no way to do friendship right. And I am desperately sorry that you've left high school feeling like you failed at friendship or that you've left high school feeling uh, lonely um, because that must be a really, really horrible feeling and it's not fair it's not fair that you feel like you haven't met your people yet um but I don't think you can tell anything at all from your future friendships from what you feel right now I think all the time when I read biographies or memoirs or listen to interviews with people that I think are incredible interesting accomplished um sensitive adults and they say oh I never had any friends at school it you know, it's this is this will not become your defining feature. It won't be exactly. even be your defining feature in friendships. Um, and not that this is a leitmotif for everyone's life, but normal people, Marianne, no friends at school, university, toast of the town you know no one at university can believe that she wasn't really popular at school so I don't know Mm. if you're going to university I don't know if you're going straight into the workplace but whatever you're doing it's a whole new opportunity for you to um connect with people and to find you know find your people so there's there's not like an expiration date on when that can happen especially not if you're 18. For sure I think you've
1: articulated
0: that beautifully Pandora. I think I think you
1: need to think of this not as a failure but as a freedom and you are going into the world and entering young adulthood with no huge ties no huge obligations no people telling you this is who you are and this is the version of yourself you have to remain mm. committed to mm. you're, you're
0: free how exciting how exciting is that. Here's another one. My boyfriend and I broke up last week after a seven-year relationship and it's completely flawed me. I like to think of all the people finding love and company during this time of hardship, but I can't help thinking this breakup is hitting me harder because of the lockdown. Oh, I'm sure it is. I think every emotional um, act is amplified by lockdown and that's a long time to be with someone. And yeah. to then be going through something very intense without them. Um my my deepest sympathies for that. That must be really hard. Dolly, what is your advice?
1: Breakup in lockdown is rough. And I think just keep reminding yourself that the way you would be getting through this breakup if we weren't in these extraordinary circumstances is you would be distracting yourself. You would be reminding yourself of the various joys of life. You would be spending time with your friends. You would be drinking tequila in a very flammable boo dress. You would be keeping yourself as busy as possible. And the luxury of, of being distracted has been denied to you. And I think what you have to see that denial as is a test I think you will look back on this period of your life and you will think the universe was was testing my strength. That is a challenge to dig very, very deep into your own resources, to be your own parent and companion and lover and friend and to look after yourself and to find intimacy uh, within your own small world at the moment. And to deepen into the solitude and face those feelings and face those insecurities that will be coming up now uh, without a partner. And those insecurities really are messages in a bottle from your deepest, deepest subconscious. So this is an opportunity to relish the silence and and listen to what you're saying to yourself and to be unafraid of the dark and to be unafraid of really processing this just you and the feelings and I think if you can see that as an opportunity then you will be able to get through anything.
0: Thank you very much to everyone who wrote into The Hilo. You can write to us Show at gmail.com You can tweet us at The Hilo Show. Everything we have spoken about today will be in the show notes but if you can't find something from a past episode shoot us a tweet or an email and us or Abby, our sub-editor, will help you out. I just wanted to say as well, thank you so much to everyone who has bought um, anything from The Hilo Shop. All of the profits from our merchandise go to charity, which is the nhs um urgent relief fund for covid and women's aid currently and we've raised over five thousand pounds for charity this year thanks to you guys so thank you very much and if you do want to buy anything a jaunty beret perhaps you can shop at thehiloshop.com and all of those addresses will be linked in the show notes
1: i think we should end with some journey to lift our spirits can you choose an
0: uplifting one to see us out i'll choose a happy one Thank you
1: for listening. Bye.
2: Bye-bye. Driving into town with the dark cloud above you Diling the number who's about to love you Oh honey, you turn me on I'm a radio, I'm a country station I'm a little bit corny, I'm a wild